please follow along with John 5, 27, or 25 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In light of the, in light of the focus on missions, I, I, um, I wanted to recommend a book to you guys, and I cannot recommend this strongly enough. Um, it's called To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. It's about the life of Adoniram Judson. It's debated on whether or not Adoniram Judson was the first American missionary to be sent out uh, from the United States to uh, foreign missions. Um, but he went out and I believe it was 1811, 1812. And uh, I was gripped by this, by this book this week. I, I couldn't put it down. And uh, I've never, the only other book outside of the scriptures that, have, that has made me cry was Where the Red Fern Grows. All right. <laughs> And as of this week, this one, I, I was weeping at, at one point, just undone by not only the suffering that Adoniram went through and his family, uh, but the faithfulness of God in sustaining him through everything that he went through. It was uh, beyond words, beyond words to describe. I, I can't recommend this enough. So To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson, you can get it on Amazon for like $22. It's well worth that investment. All right, so, and in missions, we're uh, focusing on proclaiming the message of an eternal Savior who is nothing less than the eternal Son of God, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So I desperately need the Spirit's help. I pray that you will pray for the Lord to help me and to help you as we approach this section of God's Word. So... Let's pray together. Father, what a joy it is that for us men and for our salvation, you sent your son. You commissioned him to step out of heaven and to come and, and partake of flesh and blood with us so that he might become one of us and might bring all of his eternal saving power and glory to bear upon that great task that you gave him to redeem a people for your own possession and to bring many sons to glory. I thank you, Lord, for every, every saint in this world whom you redeem by your almighty power every sinner converted through that saving message of the gospel. Thank you, Lord. We love your people, Lord. And we pray this morning that you would help us as your gathered saints here in this place to have hearts of worship 
towards you, hearts of love, hearts full of love for your name. You promise you will keep, you will keep him because he has loved my name. Lord, give us a holy love for your name in faith in that promise that you will keep us. And then give us a, a holy love for one another. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we consider more fully the glory of Christ, that you would knit our hearts together in love, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of this text, and that you would, as always, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name above anything else. Lord, we pray for this blessing, and we ask for your name to be glorified among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today uh, in John 5, we are looking at some verses that bring us to the heart of the mystery of the Trinity. And, um, and, and it's not an understatement to say that verse 26 of John chapter 5 could be the most significant verse uh, that unpacks for us the relationship of Father and Son within the Godhead. I think uh, Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology, he tried to summarize the church's confession of the doctrine of the Trinity in six statements. I wonder if you could do that. Could you summarize the doctrine of the Trinity for someone else who might ask you, you Christians say that you believe in the Trinity. You, you actually say that that is the foundation of all of your communion in all of your comfortable dependence upon God. That's the 1689 Confession, uh, chapter 2, paragraph 3, that this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion and comfortable dependence upon God. You say that that's, your, that's the foundation, but what does it even mean? What is the doctrine of the Trinity? As I get older, I'm more and more convinced of how few Christians there really are who have ever given much serious thought to the nature of that doctrine as we confess it. Louis Burkhoff, he tried to summarize the doctrine of the Trinity in six statements. And, and after speaking of the, the undivided, the one undivided essence of the eternal being of God, and after describing the fact that 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 one undivided eternal being of God is equally and fully shared among three distinct persons. He gets to a sixth point where he says, the church's confession of the Trinity is a mystery beyond the human man's ability to comprehend. And I, as I, I have felt that last point very much, in a very pronounced way as I've been preparing to preach through John 5, 26 through 27. This is indeed a mystery that we cannot comprehend. We cannot wrap our minds around such a vast reality concerning the nature of God. You know, in particular, verse 26, in verse 26, we're confronted with a statement from our Lord that is very difficult and maybe even impossible for us to understand. But it's one of the deepest revelations regarding the nature of his relationship with the Father that we have anywhere in Scripture. And, I, and I'll be honest, I, 
I do not know how to teach this passage. I don't know how to dive into the deep end of this passage without pulling all of you into that deep end with me. Okay? So what I mean by that is this message is not going to be a light message. It's not going to be an easy message, but it's going to be a vitally important message. Because if you don't understand what Jesus says about Himself and His relationship to the Father in this verse, then you don't yet comprehend what you even mean when you declare your faith in Jesus as the Son of God. You've got to grasp what He says in this verse if you're going to understand that confession. And this is a very deep topic. So we've already seen in John chapter 5 many ways that Jesus has claimed his equality with God the Father. He has declared his equality with the Father in terms of power. Right? He has the ability to do everything that the Father does. He's claimed his equality with the Father in terms of authority. He has the right to do everything that the Father does. He even has the right to work on the Sabbath. That's what he's saying to these Jews. And then also he's claimed that he has equal right to be honored to the same degree that the Father is honored. So power, authority, glory, honor, you could say worship. Jesus has already declared his equality with the Father in all of these ways. And we've seen Jesus says that reality is proven by the works that his Father gave him to do. And he's focused so far on two main works, which is raising the dead and executing judgment. Right? That manifests in two different ways. It manifests in the present by the spiritual resurrection of his people. And it's going to manifest in the future by the physical resurrection of all people. And both of those, both of those realities, the present spiritual resurrection of his people and the future physical resurrection of all people, both of those are demonstrating the reality that Jesus in his person and in his glory has the power and authority to raise the dead and to judge the world. That's what we've seen so far. Now the question that our passage today answers for us is what makes Jesus able to do these things? What gives him the right to do these things? Why is it that Jesus is able to impart new spiritual life to whomever he wills? And then what gives him the right to stand as judge over every single man, woman, and child on the face of the earth? You guys know the common, common phrase. You, go, you share the gospel with somebody, you call someone out for their sin, and they say, well, who are you to judge me? Well, who is Jesus to sit in judgment over anyone? Especially 2,000 years after his earthly ministry, why does he have the right to judge anyone today? Well, those two questions are what Jesus answers for us in these verses. And uh, we're going to start with that first question which is what makes Jesus able to raise the dead and to give them eternal life? And this is a doozy, okay? This is a very difficult question to answer, and I, I want you to really ratchet up your focus and stay with me as we walk through this, okay? Amen? Are we in agreement? Amen. Yeah? Okay. I'm not trying to talk down to you or make you feel like I'm going to be speaking over your head. I'm really not trying to do that. I just This is a difficult topic even for me to preach. I shared with... Uh, Grant and Lauren Wednesday that this is probably the most difficult sermon I think I'll have to preach in the Gospel of John. So let's, let's dive into that. So, so what, what makes Jesus able? What gives him the ability 
to raise the dead and give them life? Well, his answer to that in verses 25 and 26 is that he's able to do that because he is the son of God. Because he is the son of God. Verse 26, as the son of God, he says, just as the father has life in himself, even so, he gave to the son to have life in himself. Now, we remember that that four at the beginning of this verse is, is signaling that, that what Jesus is about to say is explaining what Jesus has just said. Right? So what's, what's following that four is explaining what Jesus said prior to that four. Right? When he says four, just as the Father has life in himself. Verse 25, he says, The hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Verse 26 comes as his explanation of why and how that is possible. How is it possible that the voice of the Son of God will summon the dead back to life? Jesus says, here's my answer. Just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. Now, as I've said, this is one of the most amazing statements found anywhere in Scripture. What does it mean when Jesus says he has life in himself? What does it mean for a person to have life in his or herself? What does that mean? Well, having life in yourself does not mean that you merely have existence or that you even experience life. You and I experience life. We have existence right now, but we don't have a life in ourselves, right? To have a life in yourself means that you possess life in yourself. It means that you have life in an absolute sense. You you don't borrow your life from some other source. You are, if you will, you are the source of your own existence, It's wrong to speak of God that way, but that's that's the concept here. God is God because God is life. That's life inheres in him. It is is inherent. It It is part and parcel of his very nature. What it means for God to be God means God is the living God. He's the God of life. He has life in himself. As I said, that's a quality, or, or excuse me, you could say that To have a life in yourself means that you are self-existent. And that's a quality that is unique to the being of God. It's sometimes referred to as God's aseity. Aseity comes from a Latin phrase, ase, which basically means from himself or from itself. Where does God's existence derive from? From where does he have life? Well, he has life ase. He has aseity. He has life from himself. In other words, there's nothing that caused God to come into being. There's there's nothing that brought him into existence. There's nothing that imparted life to God. He simply always has been and he always will be. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. He is the ultimate reality behind everything in this creation. He is the one before whom everyone must give account because He is alone absolute. God and God alone has life in Himself. And out of that eternal self-existence, He graciously 
and willingly, and I would even say joyfully, communicates that life to his creatures. Jesus says to these Jews, these religious leaders in Jerusalem, that's how I have life. In the same way that my father has life. Just as the father has life in himself, in that same way I have life in myself. Imagine a man standing before you making that claim. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Well, Jesus says here, I have life in myself, and that's what enables me to give life to others whenever I choose to do so. And then he proved that in his life, didn't he? And he continues proving that reality today by bringing dead sinners to new spiritual life through the preaching of the gospel. Now, as amazing of a statement as that is, Jesus says something even more amazing in the middle of that verse. It's amazing enough for him to say, I have life in myself the same way that the Father has life in himself. But there's a phrase in between those two statements that's even more amazing. Notice that in between saying that the Father has life in himself and the Son has life in himself, Jesus gives the reason why he has life in himself. And what is that reason? It was granted or it was given to him from the Father. Now historically, this has been one of the most debated phrases in church history in relation to the nature of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. The the essence of that debate comes down to this. How is it possible, and what does it even mean for Jesus to say that he has life in himself in the same way that the Father has life in himself? What does it mean for him to say, I have life in myself, and yet in the same breath to say that that self-existence is something that was given to him by another? You see the problem? That, that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because to say that I have life in myself means I did not derive my life from another. And yet here Jesus says, I have life in myself, and the Father is the one who gave it to the Son to have life in himself. So in our minds, it doesn't doesn't seem to work like that. You either have life in and of yourself, or you don't. You're either self-existent or you derive your existence from someone else. But Jesus says, in some way, both of those realities are true in relation to him. How are we supposed to understand that? That's been the question throughout church history on this verse. How are we supposed to understand that? Some in church history have taken this statement by Jesus as proof that he's not truly and fully God. Right? They'll argue, see, clearly in this verse, Jesus says that it's the Father who is the one who gives him life. Therefore, he cannot be equal to the Father because the Father is the one who gave the life to the Son. Doesn't that show that the Father is greater than the Son, even in his essence, even in his nature, that it was the Father who communicated to the Son the ability to have life in himself? Doesn't that subordinate the Son to the nature and the value and glory and honor of the Father? Make him lesser than the Father, in other words. 
Well, amen, it doesn't. But many in church history have said that it does. They'll argue, see, it's the Father who gives the Son life, and that means that the Son by nature is not self-existent. And therefore, he cannot be equal with God the Father because the Father is the one who gave him that life. Well, clearly in the context, we know that that's not what Jesus is saying, right? He's not saying that in his nature, he is any less than God the Father. He doesn't merely say that the Father gave him life. He says that he has, he possesses life in himself in the same way that the Father possesses life in himself. No mere creature can say that. Set aside for a moment the statement about the Father giving this to the Son and just see that Jesus is still saying that he possesses life by nature. He has self-existence in the same degree and to the same measure that the Father does. That's impossible for Jesus to say if he is not by nature co-equally and co-eternally God with the Father. Why? Why is that impossible for him to say if he is not by nature equal to the Father? Well, because self-existence is a divine attribute that cannot be shared with anyone who is not God by nature. So when we talk about the attributes of God, anybody ever studied the attributes of God? The, the, the characteristics of God? You go through, it's a, you need to study the attributes of God because that gives you stay in your soul when you get rocked in suffering and trial in life. Remembering who God is is what enables you to persevere and stand firm in the faith as you walk through those trials. Adoniram Judson, right? The book's on my heart. It's in my mind. Adoniram Judson said, if I did not hold to the fact that God is absolutely sovereign in all things, I don't know what would have preserved me through the trials I went through. See, it's, 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 it's understanding who God is. That's what enables us to live life for the glory of God. Not subject to our emotions, not subject to the whims of fancy and our own thoughts. It's resting upon the reality and the eternal nature of God. Well, when we study the attributes of God, these characteristics of God, we can divide them into two different groups. And there's debate about what, how exactly we should identify these groups, but I'm going to stay simple, okay? Some of God's attributes we can put into a group labeled his communicable attributes, that's simple, okay? Communicable attributes. Those are the attributes of God that can be shared or that can be communicated to his creatures. So some of those would be, for example, the attribute of God's love. God is love. That is an attribute of God or his goodness or his holiness or his righteousness his ability to know, or his ability to have consciousness. All, all of that belongs to, to God by nature, but those attributes, those characteristics, are things that can be shared with us as well. Right? Because God is good, and you and I, at least as far as the way that God created us, we have the potential or the capacity to be good. We have the natural ability to be good. Those of you theologians out there, I'm not saying that we have the moral ability to do good, okay? I'm just saying we have the natural ability to do good because we were made in God's image. 
God is holy. And what are we called to be? We're called to be holy as God is holy. That's an attribute of God that's shareable with his creatures. We have the ability to know. And we are called to grow in the knowledge of ourselves and of the world. And ultimately, in the knowledge of the God who made us. And redeems us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're never going to possess these attributes the way that God does. Because we might have love and we might do good things and we might strive after holiness. But the reality is, God is all of those things infinitely and eternally, right? We're not. God is infinitely good. We're not infinitely good. Even even as redeemed creatures, we are not infinitely good. And we all know we're not even entirely good right now in in our creatureliness. God is infinitely and eternally and unchangeably these things. You and I are not. But as his image bearers, we have the capacity to be like God in these ways. And that's what we mean by communicable attributes. However, the the other group of the attributes of God might be labeled God's incommunicable attributes. Those attributes of God that cannot be shared with creatures. So, for example... Uh, These would would be things like God's omniscience, right? His all-knowing capability or ability. Uh, We're striving after that, right? That's what quantum computers and and all this data harvesting from cell phones and and, and laptops and all that, that's what all of that's about. in, In artificial intelligence, it's seeking to attain to some level of omniscience. But we're never going to be able to do that because we're creatures. God alone has omniscience. God alone has omnipresence. Only God can be everywhere at all times in all of his fullness, including in this room, praise the Lord. Only God can have omnipotence, all power. Only he can have all power at his disposal and, and command it by his own will because it inheres in him, it belongs to him. Only God is eternal. Only God is infinite. Only God is immutable. All of these are attributes that belong exclusively to God as God. In other words, they're definitional of what it means for God to be God. And therefore, necessarily, these attributes cannot be shared with someone or something who is not fully God. Well, self-existence is one of those characteristics. Answer it and just tell them they should be here. (laughs) Or just let it ring. There are certain incommunicable attributes of God that cannot be shared with God's creatures because they belong to the essence of who God is and what He is. Well, self-existence is one of those characteristics. In order to have life in yourself, that necessarily means that you by nature are God. Because only God has the ability to possess life in and of himself. As creatures, you and I live on borrowed life. Only God possesses life in and of himself. And so when Jesus, speaking as the Son of God, says that he has life in himself, the same way that the Father has life in Himself, He cannot be in His nature less than the Father, otherwise that could not be true. You see the connection there? He must fully and completely be equal with the Father in His divine nature in order to possess the ability to have life in Himself. Now, 
In light of that, we can confess, no, he is equal with the Father in his divine nature, but we still have to answer the question, if the Son shares in the divine nature fully, even as the Father has the divine nature, then what does it mean for the Father to give to the Son to have life in himself? What does it mean that the Father gave him this life? Well, this has been understood in two ways. <laughs> At this point in the sermon, I felt like, man, we're just, we're just like... My outlines are just getting so deep over here, and I hope that, I hope that they're, I hope they're clear. I hope you can follow the direction where we're going. What does it mean that the Father gave to the Son to have life in himself if the Son is, in fact, equal to the Father in his divine nature? Well, this has been understood and explained in two ways. First of all, some believe that the Father giving to the Son to have life in himself is a reference to Jesus' incarnation in earthly ministry. So men like John MacArthur and John Calvin and others would believe that the Father giving to the Son to have life in himself is the Father giving his Son in his incarnate state the right to give life to others. So it's not about life itself, it's about the authority and the right to give that life to others. It's, it's like a, a divine commissioning of the Son. You now have authority to give life to others. That's how John MacArthur, John Calvin, and others would understand what this verse is saying. That in his humanity, the Father is granting for the Son to have life-giving power. Right? And, and again, we, could, we understand that maybe in light of Philippians 2.6. Right? That though he was eternally in the form of God, he was existing in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Right? It doesn't mean that he divested himself of all his divine attributes. It means that he laid aside his divine prerogatives. He laid aside his rights as God and humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death according to the will of his Father. And so they would say what Jesus is talking about here in John 5.26 is that even though he had laid aside his divine prerogatives, the Father gave him the right to exercise this life-giving ability as the God-man. Now, with all due respect to that position and to those who hold that position, it seems fairly clear to me that that's not what Jesus is saying in John 5.26. And I say that because of the language Jesus uses in this verse. Just look at what he says. He does not say that the Father gave to the Son to give life to others. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the Father gave to the Son to have life in Himself. That's not dividing up the Son in between the human Son and the divine Son. There's only one person that is the Son. Fully and eternally united in the hypostatic union of Son of God, Son of Man, coming together forever. But it's the one person of the Son that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the right to give that life to others. He's talking about the fact that he has life in himself that was given to him by the Father. Well, 
Well, if he has life in himself in the same way that the Father has life in himself, then let's just ask ourselves, how does the Father have life in himself? That's the comparison Jesus gives. If you want to understand how I have life in myself, Jesus says, it's the same way that the Father has life in himself. Well, how does the Father have life in himself? Well, he has it inherently, right? We might say he has it naturally. He necessarily possesses life in and of himself. And Jesus says, in that same way, I possess life in myself. It's inherent. It's necessary. It's natural. It belongs to me by nature. So I, I don't, just based on the language of John 5, 26, I don't believe Jesus is saying that this is talking about the right to grant life being given to him by the Father. It seems very clear to me that he's talking about the reality of his divine nature. As the person of the Son. All right, so if, that's not, if I'm saying that's not what it's talking about, then what does it mean for the Father to give to the Son self-existent life? Well, theologians like Augustine, James White, Louis Burkhoff, Joel Beakey, and others, they would understand this verse to be talking about what is called the eternal generation of the Son. This is a really important phrase for you to know. The eternal generation of the Son. This is at the heart and, and, and at the core of what Christians from the first century down to today, what we've meant when we've confessed our faith in Jesus as the Son of God. We don't mean what the Muslims think we mean. We, we don't mean that God had relations with, well, I think they believe God had relations with Mary and produced an offspring that is Jesus the Son. Well, that's obviously not what the Bible teaches about Jesus' sonship, nor are we going with the Mormons who believe that somehow God had sexual relations with some female exalted woman deity thing that produced Jesus as his son. That, that's, that is thinking about this relationship between father and son with the limitations of human categories. And we cannot do that when we come to the eternal and living God. We must think of this in relation to God's nature, his eternal, unchanging, immutable, holy, righteous, perfect nature. So we're not talking as though God produced this son in the way that like a human father would produce a son. Now what we're, what we're speaking of is when we say eternal generation, we're talking about that within the eternal nature of God, the person of the father eternally begets or eternally generates the person of the son. Does that sound heretical? Let me offer some clarification. This does not, this begetting of the Son, this generating of the Son, does not take place at the point, at any point in God's existence. This is an eternal act that is within God. What that means is it had no beginning and it will have no end. Right, so there, there was never a moment in the existence of God when the person of the Father was without the person of His Son or when the Son was not eternally existing with His Father. 
co-equally and co-eternally. What we're talking about is that, that so that in his divine nature, the Son is absolutely co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Otherwise, he could not share in this divine attribute of self-existence. And yet, as to his person, the person of the Father begets the person of the Son. Or to use the language of John 5.26, the person of the Father grants or gives or we might say mediates divine self-existence to the person of the Son. Historically, the church has believed this verse to be Jesus' explanation of what it means for him to be the only begotten of the Father. You ever wondered that, reading in, in the older versions of the Bible? ESV doesn't have this, but uh, NASB and, and other older versions of the Bible, New King James, King James, they have only begotten in relation to Jesus. Have you ever wondered to yourself, what does that even mean? What are we talking about when we're talking about the only begotten Son? Are we talking about Jesus' birth of a virgin? Or, or what? What does that mean? Well, the early church understood John 5.26 to be explaining what that means. What does it mean for Jesus to be the only begotten of the Father? Well, in John 1.14, John says, We beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What does that mean? Well, the early church would point to this verse and say, this is what it means. It means that the Son was eternally begotten of His Father. When we walk through John 1.14, if you're wondering about how to translate that word, I, I gave various reasons as to why we ought to maintain the phrase only begotten in our English translations of monogenes. Okay, you can go listen to that. It's a sermon on John 1.14. Um, and, and I believe we should maintain that because it's the Holy Spirit's designated word that is describing the unique eternal relationship that the Son enjoys with the Father. I think we should maintain only begotten and not not diminish it to only or even unique. I don't think that captures the essence of what the Holy Spirit is driving at when he describes the relation of the Son and the Father with the word monogamous. Anyway. All right, so what are we saying? What we're saying is that from all eternity, the second person of the Trinity's relationship to the first person of the Trinity is described and defined by these words, begetting and begotten. So how is one divine person distinguishable from the other divine person? Was it ever possible for the Father to be the Son? Or for the person of the Son to be the Holy Spirit? Or the Holy Spirit to be the Father? Was it interchangeable like that? Were these just titles that the three persons of the eternal God decided, oh, I'm going to take this title to myself. Oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to take the title of Son to myself. And the Holy Spirit's just left with Spirit. Well, I guess I get the third one. I got the short straw. Which is not the short straw. I don't mean that in any blasphemous way. Is that, is that how they were determined to be Father, Son, and Spirit? They just drew lots and whoever got the highest lot got to be called the Father. Is that, is, that, is that how it works? No, historically, 
The way that the church has described these inter-Trinitarian relationship that this, this, of the persons among themselves is, is using words like begotten or unbegotten or spirated. Spirit breathed out. What distinguishes the Father from the person of the Son is that the Father is the unbegotten. But he is the one begetting. What makes the Son the Son of the Father is that He is begotten of the Father. Again, this is not something that took place in time. We're not talking about some act in God that at one point He was just one person of God and then the next point in His existence, all of a sudden the Son pops up. That's not not what we're talking about. We're talking about eternal relations of origin is what they're called. The eternal relations of the persons within God. God eternally exists in three persons. We're talking about those eternal relations of those three persons in the Godhead. How are they defined? How are they described? How do we understand them? Well, with these terms relating to eternal relations of origin, right? That the Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten of the Father. The Spirit proceeds or is spirated. From both. Right, this is, what the, the, this is why I had us read the Nicene Creed this morning. Because that's what the creed, this is what the creed is talking about when it says that our Lord Jesus Christ is by nature God of God, light of light, very God of very God. That little preposition of there, it's really important. And it could be translated as from. Or it could be translated as out of. So we might say something like, In our confession of Jesus Christ, we might say that he is God out of God, light out of light, very God out of very God. The Son is fully, completely, entirely, and absolutely in his nature God. He completely possesses the fullness of the divine nature equal to the Father, and yet he is called God from God. By the, by the church historically. He is called light from light, very God from very God. One substance with the Father, yet distinguished from the Father as the divine Son. The divine person who is begotten by the divine person who is begetting. This is what makes the Son the Son and the Father the Father. The Father is the Father because He eternally begets the Son. The Son is called the Son because He is eternally begotten of the Father. That's what John 5.26 is talking about, in my opinion and my conviction. And at the heart of what we mean when we declare our faith in Jesus as the Son of God is this very reality. He's begotten out of the Father in His person. I went much longer on that. I'm sorry. But let me try to apply this. Why is this even important for us to consider? This may be the only thing we get to. We might have to come back to executing judgment next week. We'll see. I don't know. When Jesus says he has life in himself because it was given to him from the Father to have life in himself, this is what makes it possible for you and me to declare that Jesus Christ is God alongside the Father and yet not be confessing faith in two gods. This this is what keeps us from being idolaters when we uphold the divine nature of the Son and we worship Him and honor Him even as we honor the Father. 
that this is how the Son can claim to have the same power and the same authority and the same glory and right to be honored as God the Father and yet not be a usurper. This is how the Father can call all creation to worship and honor and praise and give glory to the Son and not be an idolater or be guilty of sharing His glory with another. You remember that phrase from Isaiah? I am, I am Yahweh. I will share my glory with no one. Well, how is it in the New Testament then that the Father is clearly sharing glory with His Son? Only because both are united in the one being that is Yahweh. Two persons in one God. Three with the Holy Spirit. The reason why all of this is true is because the person of the Son is the divine word of the Father. He's begotten of the Father, meaning he's the, he's the image of the one who remains invisible. He's the, the radiance and the outshining of the Father's full and perfect glory. He's the exact imprint and perfect representation of God's holy nature. And by the way, this is what makes the saving work of Jesus Christ effectual for sinners like us. Right? What makes Jesus Savior of us is not just that He was a good man or that out of love or out of conviction He died for a good cause. No, what makes Jesus our Savior was that He was the fullness of God in the flesh who came into this world to lay His infinite life down in our place. This is what made His sacrifice for our sins worthy of earning an eternal redemption. What do you think would enable Jesus' one death to earn eternity of salvation for countless numbers of sinners? It's not just that He was a holy good man. It's that He was God the God-man laying his life down for his people. This is what makes his sacrifice for our sins worthy of earning an eternal redemption for us, uh, that by his eternal spirit he offered himself without blemish to God on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 9. That the Son, the divine Son, as the perfect God-man Jesus Christ, was suffering under the justice of God in our place when He hung on the cross. When He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The Son in the person of Jesus was receiving the fullness of God's wrath that should fall upon you. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that is so that you and I would not have to be forsaken. This is what makes the gospel hopeful. This is what makes the gospel good news. That the Son of God, joined together in flesh and blood by the power of his own destructible life, would rise up again from the dead would ascend into glory and in his own inherent worth and dignity and, the, and his inherent life would take his seat in glory upon the throne of his Father. This is what makes the righteousness that Jesus gives us, by the way, uh, effectual and eternally adequate for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus gets our sins and we get what? The righteousness of who? Of God. How do we, human beings, get the righteousness of God? It's 
by the perfect God-man who fulfilled all righteousness in our place. Right? And then clothes us in his perfect righteousness to present us eternally without spot, without blemish in the presence of his Father. This is what makes our faith in Jesus meaningful. This is what makes it not empty in vain. Right? This is what makes our, our salvation real and effective and not just some blind, empty hope, a shot out in the dark. That the life-giving power of the Son of God is, is what flows to us, raising us from our spiritual deadness and bringing us to new life in His name as the one who laid that life down for us. Now the question here that I felt compelled to ask is, is not, can you fully comprehend or understand this reality? I'm not asking, can you fully understand or comprehend this reality? The question is, do you see this reality in the life of Jesus Christ, and do you submit yourself to it? That's the issue. Not can you work out all the details, but can you see the reality of this father-son relationship, this glory of the son put on display in his life? Can you see the reality of who he is, who he showed himself to be, and submit yourself to it? That really beats up against our post-enlightenment thinking where we feel that we are the arbiters of truth and if we can't understand something, it can't be true. Well, I praise God that we can't understand the Trinity because that's one of the greatest evidences that it is true. You cannot wrap your brain around the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a glorious reality because it means that it was never produced by the mind of man to begin with. All right, so, so what gives Jesus the ability to raise the dead and give them life? Well, that he is the Son of God. And by Son of God, he is the begotten of the Father, the one who with the Father has life in and of himself. How you feeling? Good. Why don't we go just a little bit? I'll try to condense this because this is not where I wanted to end this morning. Just briefly, let's move on to the second question. If, if that's what makes Jesus able to give life according to his will, give life to the dead, then what gives him the right to judge? What gives him the right to judge the world in righteousness? We see that answer in verse 27, where Jesus says he has the right to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So in verse 27, not only has the Father given to the Son to have life in himself, but he also has given him authority to execute judgment on behalf of the Father. Now, as I pointed out before a couple weeks ago, that phrase, Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, right? Where there's this one like a Son of Man who is presented before the Ancient of Days, And that word presented, that, that, that word is used in reference to offering a sacrifice to the Lord, by the way, in the Old Testament. As he's being presented to the Ancient of Days, he's being lifted up to be evaluated by the Ancient of Days. And so he's presented to be judged and to be examined by the Ancient of Days. And in verse 14, it shows us that this Son of Man was found worthy in the eyes of the Ancient of Days to receive from the hand of God a dominion, a glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples, all nations, and men of every language might serve Him. Now, remember what I said a couple weeks ago. That word serve 
is only used ten times in the Hebrew Old Testament, and every single time it's used in reference to offering service to God. Here, the Ancient of Days is exalting this one like a son of man so that he might be served, worshipped by all the peoples of the earth. So the Father sees this, this Son of Man as worthy of an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and a kingdom which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man has become the object of universal worship and is established as God's universal King. And everyone owes their allegiance to Him by decree of God. Right? Including you and me. Son of Man. I, I love this phrase. It means more than just the fact that the universal ruler of all the world would be born as a man and show solidarity with humanity. That's not all that this is getting at. This language and the themes that are related here in Daniel 7 are are hearkening back to uh, language that was used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, in reference to Adam. So this son of man comes and he's given a dominion, he's given a rule and an authority that will not pass away. In Genesis 1.28, what did God call Adam to do? God called Adam to take dominion over God's creation, to rule as the image bearer of God. Well, Adam failed in doing that. He chose sin over the Lord. But here in Daniel chapter 7, we find that the Lord has appointed one like a son of man who will take the place of Adam and succeed where Adam failed. Right? Not, just, not just dominating the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. All of that was Adam's job, but now there's a different complication. Now it's not just the beasts of the field that need to be ruled. It's not just the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. It's man himself who needs to be brought back into submission to the rule of God. And what do we find with the Son of Man in Daniel 7? We find the Ancient of Days giving to that Son of Man the task of submitting all the nations under the rightful and sovereign rule of His Father, the Ancient of Days. John 5.27, Jesus points to that verse and says, that's talking about me. What What an amazing moment. To to hear Jesus say that, I mean, to be one who was schooled in the Old Testament, to know this language of Son of Man from the Old Testament, and then to have Jesus, this man, standing before you and saying, that's talking about me. Wow. And I'm going to prove it, by the way, he says. That's what gives Jesus the right to execute judgment over all the world. He is the divinely appointed Son of Man, the universal ruler to whom every man, woman, and child owes their allegiance. Now, my friend, you and I are a part of that. And whether we want to be or not, God the Father has submitted us to the authority of His Son. The question is whether or not we recognize that. John 17, I think it's verse 2, the Father has given all authority over all flesh to the Son so that the Son might give eternal life to those who believe. He has authority over every single human being, and it's to the end that he might save his people for his glory. I wonder if you have found your place in joyful and faith-filled submission to your God-appointed King. If the rest of the sermon has lost you, stay with me here. 
I wonder if you have found your rightful place under the king that God has appointed in joy-filled and humble obedience and submission to him. Have you taken your oath of allegiance to him in the waters of baptism? I love Adoniram Judson. I'm just, I feel like I'm going to be quoting him the rest of my life. When he was examining uh, Burman believers, Burmese people, to see whether or not they were fit for baptism, he would ask them, are you ready to take your oath of allegiance to Jesus? Have you taken that oath of allegiance? Have you sworn yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord in the waters of baptism? Has your heart seen something of the glory of the Father that he has put on display for us to see in his Son? Have you seen that? Jesus' kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His sovereignty rules over all. And one day that reality is going to fall upon the world of sinners with such terrifying fury that the world will be seeking any means possible to be delivered from having to deal with the Lamb. But we need to never forget that right now, as the King of glory, who executes the judgment of God, that King at this moment is seated upon a throne of grace. There is a day coming when the Lord is going to deal out judgment and wrath and fury to all of His enemies. Right? He speaks in the parables about bringing those who refuse to have Him rule over them. He says, you bring them before Me and slay them in My presence. That's Jesus talking. Yes, the day's coming when the fullness of God's wrath and just anger against the world is going to fall upon every single sinner who would not genuinely and sincerely bow the knee to King Jesus and confess Him as Lord and own Him as Savior. Yes, that's true. But in the day that's now, Jesus is seated upon a throne of grace. He's seated upon a throne of mercy. He's seated upon a throne that enables Him to deal out the compassions of the Father for the glory of God's name. He swears in His Word that He's filled with steadfast love and faithfulness to all who will call upon Him. To all who will call upon Him in truth. Yes, He's the sovereign King. And He will dash the nations to pieces with the rod of iron in His hand. But He calls out to us now with grace and compassion and He says, you come to Me right now and I will never, ever cast you out. You come to Me, you ask for grace, you ask for mercy, and you will find Me to be a faithful, perfect, loving, kind, compassionate, tender Savior. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. What does He have? He has a gentle and a lowly heart. Gentle heart. I have that too, even though it doesn't come out the way that many might think. He's gentle and he's lowly. Jesus has been raised to a throne of mercy so that right now, before the day comes when he deals out the wrath and judgment of God on the world, he would glorify the loving nature of God by dealing out the loving kindnesses and compassions of his Father upon all who will approach his throne humbly. He took on flesh and blood so that he could give us help. And he's able to be sympathetic and compassionate towards us because he is the one who has been touched with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all ways as we are, and yet he is without sin. And he promises that all who will come to him, they will find him. They will find that they will never be cast out.
You know, those promises that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago are just as true now as they were then. The same Jesus who who partakes in that divine attribute of self-existence is the Jesus who partakes in the divine attribute of immutability. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so let's not hesitate to run to him knowing that he will gladly and joyfully receive us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the ways in which you humble men. (laughs) And there's nothing more humbling than trying to preach a passage like this. Lord, I pray that you would bless your people. That you would allow your word to, to meet their hearts where they are. That you would apply this truth to them. You would give them joy and peace in believing. Lord Jesus, that you would show yourself as the mighty Savior who has life in himself to give and to command. Show us who are believers how we've participated in that life with you by you raising us from our spiritual deadness and bringing us into union with yourself. Show those who are not yet believing in this room, Lord, those who have not yet been saved, those who are still dead, show them that they have not yet heard your voice. Awaken them, Lord. Let them taste and see that the Lord is good. And then spend the rest of their days chasing down the fullness of your goodness in the name of Jesus. Father, bless us for your own sake. Give us grace. Give us mercy. And help us see the glory that as of right now we're only straining to see. God, we ask for this this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's end on a benediction from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. I pray that you will go out in in the greatest power and authority in the spirit to live as Christ's own possession and to glorify him by being zealous for good deeds. May you go out in the peace of Jesus' name. Amen.